Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects, like today, the federal budget. Sure. Yay. My name is Stephen Hackett, and that very enthusiastic co-host of mine is Jason Snow. Stephen, the good news is that we asked the federal government for nothing, and the federal budget came in and we got nothing. So that puts us ahead of NASA. Wait, you mean we like the liftoff podcast? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, we should have. Did you use the fancy Relay FM letterhead? Yeah, well, I, I just said, you know, I sent a letter to the White House that said, Dear Mr. President, um, you don't need to fund the liftoff podcast this year. We're fine. Love, Jason and Stephen. And uh, I guess he and Congress listened because nothing was a portion for us. We got what we wanted. Yeah, well, this is, I mean, so we'll, we'll get into it here for the pre-flight checklist, but this is, this is an ongoing story. I mean, it's gone on longer than this podcast has been around, but certainly as long as we've been ta- talking about it, this keeps happening, which is NASA says, you know what, this is what we think our budget should be. And Congress goes, Mm-mm, you're getting more money than that, pal. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. M- more money and um, the allocation is sometimes different. Congress wants certain yes. things that NASA doesn't always include in their budget on right. their own. Also, NASA didn't have a budget last year. It's true. They were just going by the previous year's budget. Recycle so now Let's they will again. actually have have a budget, which is uh, which is different, and there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. Yeah, so this is in the, the big financial year 2018 bill that was just signed uh, on Friday, so just a few days ago. Uh, we were prepping for this, not knowing if it was going to be signed or not by the time we recorded, but they signed right. it. It's all done. So this is the uh, the 2018 federal budget for the United States government. NASA's part of that. NASA has been uh, allocated $20.7 billion out of that budget, an increase of almost $1.1 billion mm. over 2017. So they, they got some, some more cash this time. That's right. It's good. It's uh, it's it, it. But where is it? That's the question. Um, if you heard about cuts to the different parts of the NASA budget, and there was definitely some outrage that was in the president's budget proposal. And although the president's party controls Congress, the fact is, even in that situation, and certainly when there are different parties in different places, the president's requests for a budget are often really symbolic and are mm-hmm. not actually taken into account by Congress, which passes a big, messy budget that the president's like, all right, right I guess I'll sign this. And that's usually <laughs> how that works. And, and that's totally how, how it worked this time. So, for example, science, education, and uh, the space launch system actually ended up as big winners, despite what you might have read uh, in the initial thoughts about the president's public, uh, budget proposal. Right, and and that was the budget proposal that we went, we both went to NASA events when they unveiled it. Right, I was yes in the room when the acting administrator read from his spreadsheets, like in the room, <laughs> and we all had our thoughts on it. And this is kind of where we actually are. So it's always a little bit of a roller coaster if you pay attention to the way this works. Um, people get excited and then you know are angry or whatever, and then it sort of comes out in the end. So, like you said, science education. And the SLS, big winners. We just talked about last episode, I think, about the second mobile launcher yeah. for the space launch system. They were going to basically um, maybe just use one, and then that was going to be like a really big turnaround time because they basically had to rebuild it. And now they're going to have uh, money for a second one. This could 
potentially mean a faster turnaround for EM2, the second fly of the SLS, but that's way down the road. Um, but basically yeah, everything we said all... last time has been rendered, you know, changed. Well, this is this is the back and forth that we've been talking about for a while, which is SLS for NASA's next generation rocket and uh, next generation miss- missions with capsules on the top and all of that. Um, the problem was that the first version was going to launch and then they were going to need to, they had made so many changes in the progress of it that they were going to need to tear down and, and rebuild essentially um, the launch platform for the second one that was going to take more than two years, almost three years. So if you were waiting for that moment when they might actually launch something that was interesting and not just sort of a test flight, you, you we were, were not only waiting for SLS for that first mission, which is still years away, but it would be th- basically three years, let's be realistic here, mm-hmm. until the one that followed it. So then, you know, you're adding that then we're talking about like, what, 2025, maybe yeah. before any uh, payloads of any relevance would launch on SLS. And by mandating a second mobile launcher, for uh, SLS, uh, theoretically, this will move things up in terms of when that second launch happens. Now, we don't know, I mean, relative to the first launch, let's put it that way, relative to the first launch, right? <laughs> yeah. Because we don't know what will happen in the first launch. First launch goes badly, um, whenever it is, that will have an effect on it. But at least if they start the process of building the second launcher, it means that the second mission could follow more quickly after the first mission. Except lots of other variables, but this is a step in that direction for sure. Yeah, and it's it's funny because it's a controversial sls is controversial and we've talked about some of the controversy it's very expensive it's been uh, it was modified from a previous concept it is also though nasa's flagship it's got what we said last time i pointed out the whole argument about like people contributors from every congressional district and things like that it's like it's all it's also very political it's a, to keep this thing around and you can see it here where this is congress saying no 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 we are going to keep going down the path with SLS. You're mm-hmm. not going to get away from this and, and take your foot off the gas with this. We're going to actually put more money into the into the hopper for it. So let's let's talk about some of the uh, some of the numbers here. Um, right up first is the the wonderful world of astrophysics, which would receive uh, eight hundred and fifty million dollars in funding, a hundred million dollars more than last year, including um, four hundred fifty six million for the W first program, which had been under that previous proposed budget had been, um, had been canceled. And we talked then about conjecture that maybe that's a warning shot that Congress may not allow that program to be, uh, to be shuttered. And it seems like that is the case that that will, they'll move forward at least for this budget year. Yeah. This was one of the things that people were really upset about because they, uh, scientists do something called the decadal survey, I think, which is basically what are our science priorities for the next decade? And W first was at the top (laughs) and the president's budget basically canceled it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, what's interesting is that it's got a lot of people upset because this is a, uh, super, uh, important mission in terms of understanding, I think, what is it, exoplanets and dark energy? Like, there's a lot of really cutting-edge stuff that scientists really want to know about, and this was the, why it was a high priority. The language of the budget specifically says, in addition to funding this, specifically says 
you should really pay attention to the decadal survey priorities. Mm-hmm. Like that's that that wording is in there, and that's a message I, I suspect to NASA, but also to the the administration at, as a whole that their priorities were wrong in their proposed budget. And that when the decadal survey says that this is a priority, Congress says it is a priority. And uh, I think that is interesting and good news for W First in the sense that, you know, Congress is saying, and now it's inscribed in law because it was signed by the president, that um, you don't dump this thing that is at the top of every science list just because you want to, I don't know what, just because you want to save some money on something. This, this isn't where you save it. And I think that's really the the theme in this whole budget. As we're going to get into it, planetary sciences, earth sciences, education, mm-hmm. all being funded at levels that meet the sort of the previous levels, if not higher, in direct, I don't want to say violation, but in direct opposition to what the White House's budget had called for. Planetary sciences, you know, at $2.2 billion, everyone's favorite Europa missions are called for. Um, That's Culperson, right? That's the guy from Texas who's always like, we're landing on Europa. Keep super, putting it in the budget. Super excited about it. So the Europa <laughs> Clipper uh, has was there before. It's still there. And then uh, in addition, a Mars sample return mission. So going, landing on Mars and collecting material to to bring back to bring back to Earth. So all, all, nothing, I don't think any, anything particularly new in this line item, but it's nice to see that that increase. Yeah, and this is the case where um, even in previous administrations, Congress was going back and forth. This uh, Europa one is a good example of that, where Congress keeps pushing that mission forward. Um, I do wonder about um, where the... I don't know historically how much of NASA's priorities in the president's proposed budget come from NASA versus come from a presidential, you know, space policy group somewhere, but, um, or just a budget group somewhere, but it can't help the fact that there is no, um, appointee as NASA administrator, right? Because that Mm -hmm. makes it even more difficult. Like who speaks for the administration? Uh, Who's the administration's representative at NASA? Who's working with them? And the answer is there's nobody. It's instead, it was this acting administrator who is now retiring. So, um, that there's an even bigger disconnect than usual here, which is, uh, which is kind of weird. Um, and where you see it, I think in 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 places is the earth sciences stuff, as you mentioned earlier. Um, they are keeping the one point nine billion dollar funding for earth sciences. They uncanceled four of the five missions killed by the Trump administration. That is um, interesting because the implication from the Trump budget was basically, uh, "Hey NASA, stop looking at the Earth." Like. Like, we don't want you doing global warming research. We don't want you learning about things about our planet that might be politically inconvenient. Let's turn all of those things off. And Congress, interestingly, um, didn't do that. So so maybe the answer is that this is a uh, less extreme approach that Congress prefers to kind of let this stuff ride instead of slashing and burning the space budget. But uh, you see it in the earth science side where... Um, they uncanceled for those five missions. So uh, moving down the list uh, a little bit, we we talked about the second mobile launcher kind of at the beginning, but uh, SLS and Orion both are funded at the same level as 2017, so 2.15 billion and 1.35 billion, respectively. So again, this is something that is important to Congress because it's important to a lot of congressional districts around the country. And uh, I think it's just going to continue going at this pace 
basically forever. Yeah, keeps the ball rolling uh, forward. And since they were already kind of using a previous year's budget, this is basically just same funding levels, keep going, keep developing SLS and Orion. The bill also restores $100 million for education efforts. Remember, we spoke about this forever ago. The administration had wanted to eliminate NASA's Office of Education. And this effectively undoes that. I I don't know. Some of the details here are a little unknown as if it's going to be basically all those people still have jobs or it's going to look differently, but it is funding to restore that effort on the part of the agency. And I think out of all of this, it's the one that I felt probably the most strongly about when they when they were going to ax it, and I'm glad to see that Congress is taking care of it. Yeah, you could even see the uh, people at NASA when I was there, like, saying the company line, essentially, because they're part of the executive branch, right? But at the same time, I got the sense that nobody was particularly happy about the idea. Uh, and the bill continues to include the so-called Wolf Amendment, which prohibits NASA from engaging in basically space cooperation with China (laughs) unless certain conditions are met and Congress is notified of those conditions being met. And that hasn't happened. So we are still sort of in a, uh, a silent treatment when it comes to China and space. It's pretty weird. Um, it, it, it's the longer this goes, I think the longer it looks like a little bit of a curiosity as geopolitical stuff keeps changing that, uh, this is the U.S. saying we're never gonna we're never gonna work with China on anything in space, even a little bit, even talk to them about it. Um, I suppose you could say that although they could do something similar with Russia, they can't because they have pre-existing agreements for the International Space Station with Russia, and they need Russia's rockets for the ride mm-hmm. to space at this point. So yep. you can't freeze them out, whereas it's easier to freeze China out. Um, but when we talk about what happens next with the ISS. Uh, or where we go next in space. If there are international space programs, you know, where we're collaborating with other uh, space agencies uh, between NASA in the U.S. and, you know, there's ESA and there's the Russian Space Agency, um, then there's China. And, like, the Europeans can collaborate with China. They can talk to China. But we can't, as Americans, talk to China. It's very strange. Very strange situation to single them out. And, you know, we can talk about, like, there are lots of things about Chinese Chinese government that is not great right now, but the U.S. and China are pretty intertwined economically in so many different ways. And yet in space, it's sort of like, no, no, don't speak. Can't talk. You're not there. La, 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 la. I can't hear you. (laughs) Weird. It's super weird. So we are going to talk about uh, Apollo 6 today. But first, there was a, a milestone for the Curiosity rover. You want to tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, so Curiosity, if you if you don't remember, this is the this is the third. This is not one of the twins. This is not one of the golf carts on Mars. This is the SUV on Mars. Curiosity. Uh, it landed in August 2012. It's traveled since then about 11.6 miles. How many kilometers is that, Stephen? For our metric friends out there, let's say it's about 18 and a half kilometers. Thanks, Google. Google uh, translated that for me. Um, what's the milestone? You're probably thinking to yourself, August 2012. Okay, well, that was It's not quite six years ago. It's like five and a half years ago. What would be a milestone in five and a half years? And the answer is, ha-ha, you're counting Earth time. Curiosity has been active on the surface of Mars for 2,000 sols, which are Mars days. 
you may be thinking about Spirit and Opportunity. The those are the golf carts. Opportunity is also still running. It is way past its warranty, but Curiosity still rolling around as well. Two thousand sols out there. Eleven and a half miles traveled. It's been climbing on a mountain on Mars, Mount Sharp, since 2014, and now traveling to a large area of clay. Which, as part of the mission here, this is what this is all about, right? That would have, if, if it is a truly large clay area, they will be able to see how it was formed by inspecting it. And uh, that formation would probably have required water, right. which is further evidence about, like, the history of water on the surface of Mars in, in the ancient past. So, it's on the move, it's climbing a mountain, um, and it, it is still functioning after all this time. Yeah. In fact, uh, they've really only lost one instrument, uh, being the wind speed sensor. Um, I read into this. Some of it they think was damaged during landing, and then sort of the rest of it was damaged uh, a while later. So they can't tell wind speed anymore. But um, everything else has been—it's pretty good. Has been operational. They have had some other. They've had some other issues, right? You've seen pictures of the, of the wheels; they're all torn up by the rocks and stuff. Um, that hasn't caused any any major issues, uh, but it's something they are looking at closely all the time. But there has been an issue with the the drill. So one thing Curiosity does: it goes up to a rock drills into it and the feed motor for that drill has been uh been acting up and they've been working on ways to use the drill without putting additional wear on it so they actually went for a long time without using this feed motor and now they're using it uh sometimes under certain circumstances sort of very very carefully it's really a a testament like the the previous rovers this hardware can run and run and run and it, it really has has uh, met its goals and beyond. Now, this thing is nuclear powered. It's not solar powered, and so with that, you're always thinking about uh, of, you know power dips that would be happening in the future. Uh, we've seen this. We talked about it with the Voyager probes, right? That as time mm-hmm. goes on, they have less power available to them, and so you have to turn off instruments and and you lose certain things along the way. It seems like that the best estimate is that Curiosity will have another year or so, another twelve months or so kind of at its current power level before a power dip is expected and they are working on okay what can we do to to work through that are there things that we can give up are there things that we can give up now potentially delay that that dip from right. coming so that's kind of where they are now looking long term uh, the, the power available to the team is what's going to be going to be a big issue cutting edge power management power management's big in space it's big in mobile devices like our smartphones it's like power management we as as the users of this technology we don't think about it as much but uh, it's super important for yeah. frame of reference by the way spirit one of the the two golf carts on mars um, again was planned for 90 sols the, that was the warranty um, spirit was roaming around the surface of mars for 1892 sols so mars days and then it kind of couldn't move anymore. Um, and it was operational for about 2200 And Opportunity is currently on uh, its past 5,000 Mars days since it landed and has gone um, more than the length of a marathon. I think we've talked about that last year, that, that it, it is, has gone, um, at this point, uh, more than 28 miles, more than 45 kilometers as of January and uh, keeps on rolling around the edge of Endeavor Crater right now. So there's, there's, but those are, those guys are solar powered. So there is going to be that, a different challenge for Curiosity. But still, I love the fact they got to take immense pride, uh, the, the designers and manufacturers of these rovers, that they have lasted so far beyond what was anticipated. 
I would imagine that means that future Mars uh, rovers are going to be rated for more time, that they're going to use this experience to make them realize that when they say it's 90 days, they actually mean 5,000. I don't know. We got to update the warranty. So we have a sponsor this week I want to tell you about, and that is Squarespace. Enter offer code LIFTOFF at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with Squarespace because they allow you to easily create a website for your next idea. You can get a unique domain name, use award-winning templates, and so much more. Maybe you want to create an online store, something you want to sell. Or maybe you have a bunch of artwork you want to show off in a beautiful portfolio. Or maybe you got a lot of ideas you want to share with the world on a blog. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do just that. You can do all of that on one site with Squarespace. There's nothing to install, no patches to worry about, and no upgrades are needed. You don't have to become a server admin to run a Squarespace site because they, they've got you covered. Squarespace has award-winning 24-7 customer support. If you do need help, they allow you to quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, which is so important when starting a new uh, web project. And all of their award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. At Relay FM, we use Squarespace to uh, power our blog. So we have new shows, we have announcements. It's very easy to go in there and we can use Markdown and uh, do it right in the browser and add pictures and add links and buttons and stuff. It's all very simple. We don't have to worry about HTML or CSS. We can just put out the blog post and uh, and be on our way. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial today with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com. When you do decide to sign up, use the offer code LIFTOFF to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for this show. We thank Squarespace for their support. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. So we are back to talk about Apollo 6. We have been talking about these uh, these missions, but we've slowed down a little bit. We want to hit the 50th anniversary of each one over the next couple of years. Uh, so Apollo 6, uh, we're about a week early, but uh, you know when you have a fortnightly show, you do what you got to do. It happens. Yeah. It was... NASA's last uncrewed Apollo test flight. It was the second flight of the Saturn V, which, as we get into, had quite a few issues on this flight. Um, It took place on April 4th, 1968. Apollo 6 had several objectives. It was to fly the Saturn V with a simulated payload that about 80% of the weight of a full lunar mission. After the launch... NASA was supposed to demonstrate translunar injection capability of the upper stage of the rocket. So, hey, we're going to light this third stage and we'll be able to go and actually get to the moon with that burn. And lastly, uh, Apollo 6 was to include a repeat demonstration of the command module heat shield. So you go out and you bring the command module back and uh, make sure that heat shield can re-enter the atmosphere uh, without any issues. So sort of a a three-pronged mission for Apollo 6. Yep, test a bunch of things that they want to test before they put people up there. Makes sense. Uh, they put a, a, an uncrewed Apollo capsule on it. It was part of the Block 1, the first uh, first production block of the spacecraft, as had been used in previous tests. Uh, the Saturn V was assembled in 1967 and was the first mission to use High Bay 3 in the giant, very tall vertical assembly Vehicle assembly building. Vertical assembly building. I like that. The idea that it's a very tall <laughs> building. Vehicle. But it's the vehicle assembly, assembly building. building. And uh, the first to use mobile launcher number two to take off. After months of testing and delays, because it's Apollo, uh, Apollo 6 finally left the ground 
but it just took two minutes and five seconds to run into issues. The Saturn V structure uh, underwent a severe pogo oscillation for 30 seconds or so. So this is kind of a a big thing. Uh, But basically what happens is the thrust provided by the rocket motors fluctuates slightly during flight. You know, you're not flying at uh, at a constant rate of burn. They fluctuate a little bit. And sometimes... Uh, that can create a resonance frequency that spreads up and down the rocket. So basically the whole thing begins to vibrate. If you've ever had a tuning fork and you hit it on the side of something and it and it vibrates very strongly, that's kind of what's going on here. Now this was a known issue and engineers had worked to try to dampen and detune the rocket, basically make this more difficult to spread. Uh, but it wasn't enough. And in this case... Uh, fuel lines and other components vibrated violently within the rocket. Uh, and and basically, for 30 seconds or so, the Saturn V became the world's largest flying tuning fork. Yeah, it would be very unpleasant if you were a human being riding it. The, the best analogy that I could come up with is if you've ever like been driving a car and you had a big bump and your foot hit the gas... Um, and then you took your foot off the gas and like that you, you get in that weird kind of feedback loop where like the, the, the jerking forward and backward moves your foot on and off the gas for a couple of seconds. And you're co- so you're like gas, not gas, not. But the, it becomes this if it can come into a resonance there, then it's bad. And you have to like pull your foot all the way off the pedal, smooth everything out and then and then reengage. It was kind of like that. It's super scary. Because you think about, again, this stuff being super... Uh, the, the whole rocket science... <laughs> you don't have to be a rocket scientist to be on this podcast. But um, this is one of those areas of rocket science that is incredibly hard. Because you need to get that thrust as smooth as possible. Right. So it so this kind of stuff doesn't happen. Because it will shake your people or hardware apart. Um, they knew this was an issue going in. They had worked very hard to detune the tuning fork on the stack. Um, the first mission had gone off pretty well, but on this launch of the Saturn V, um, it turns out that they, they just hadn't done enough and it was still a problem. Uh, during the first stage burn, the oscillations were so severe that structural panels were lost from the lunar module adapter at T plus 133 seconds. So, uh, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, stuff is falling off the vehicle because of the Pogo <laughs> oscillations. It's not a good scene. No, no, it's not. So they get through the first stage burn, they get to the second stage burn, and one of the five second stage J2 engines started having performance issues, and then the onboard computer uh, shut it down. It turns out that fuel lines feeding engine number three had been damaged during that pogo oscillation, so it's starving for fuel. The the computer says, no, no, we're going to shut you down. Unfortunately... Regrettably, the command wiring for engines three and two were partially cross-wired. Whoops. So engine two shut down just seconds after the computer shut down the first motor. So engine three, fuel lines were damaged in the oscillation. Engine two was shut down to uh, wiring mishap. And so now you're on three of five second stage motors, which is uh, not, not ideal. This led to a lot of uh, additional forces on the second stage, so much so that there's a structural I-beam, a 12-inch long I-beam inside the second stage that actually, when they recovered it, was was uh, bent from the, the uneven force applied to the stage, 
which could have caused what we in the industry call a rapid <laughs> unexpected disassembly. It, it did not yeah. in Apollo 6's case, but this is a serious problem. Yeah, in reading a book, I was reading a book about uh, the Apollo program and about the. Uh, actually, I think it was my the book that I read about the the uh, the Soviet space program and the U.S. space program in parallel, and Werner von Braun, and they were talking about this stuff. Um, and uh, I think so. Both of both the Apollo book and the and the rocket book talk about this. And the, this I beam, this bent I beam, I came away thinking that this is ultimately the big red flag for this mission which is that thing the amount of force required to bend the 12 inch i-beam everybody looked at that and said we were very lucky that this whole thing didn't just come apart and that was i I think the biggest walk thing that they walked away from this entire uh experience uh was pogoing led to a chain of events that led to some structural damage that could have destroyed the spacecraft it's a big Mm -hmm. it's a it's it's super scary uh the vehicle's onboard guidance system was un was able to compensate what it did was it did burn those second stage engines 58 additional seconds however that meant the orbit when it finally reached orbit the orbit was more elliptical than had been planned and that was just the start of uh the problems there were more there were more to be done there there are more. Uh, the third stage, turned out, had also been damaged. It was supposed to restart to put the spacecraft into translunar injection. Remember, that was that second mission objective. Okay, can we do a burn to get on a path to get to the moon? And it failed to restart, so they were unable to do that. Uh, however, they, they still needed to test the command module heat shield, and that required being out from the atmosphere uh, a certain distance, so you're coming in at speed. So they used the service module engine to raise the spacecraft into a higher orbit. And this had been done on Apollo 4, so this wasn't unknown territory. So they do a service module burn, they get up to a higher orbit, and then turn around and bring the command module back for its complete test, meeting that third objective. Now, the Apollo 6 vehicle was uh, not crewed, but it was outfitted with many cameras. And a lot of that footage can be found on YouTube. We'll put a link in the show notes to it. One of the most iconic images shows the interstage between the first and second stages falling away. If you've ever watched an Apollo documentary, you have seen that shot. It's, it is uh, it is like the... If you're thinking about a non-crew footage, it is like the shot of the Apollo mission. It's really yeah. beautiful. Yeah, it's the one that in Apollo 13, they, they, they the ad where the O in Apollo is the, is the stage falling. I mean, it's just, it is iconic. You'll know it when you see it. Yep. I still have that in the show notes. So lots of Saturn V issues in this, in this launch. But the command module that Block 1 spacecraft did manage to successfully splash down and now is on display in Atlanta, Georgia. So if you're in Atlanta... You can go see the Block 1 Apollo 6 command module that had a very rough ride into space but did make it back intact. It's at the Fernbank Science Center, so you can you can check it out. And that's why we have all that footage, because the footage came back. It survived. Got all the way back down. Um, so I mentioned the I-beam. Let's just put, not put too fine a point on this. Uh, flight controller Chris Kraft called this a disaster. His actual word, this was a disaster, this mission. We talk about Apollo 1... And that fire being the low point of the Apollo program, certainly the loss of life makes it so. But 
Um, we also talk about how it led to change that put the program on a better trajectory where they were able to get to the moon and get to the moon without any other loss of life. But the truth is, Apollo 5 and Apollo 6 were both troubled, and the, this was another low point for Apollo. Things, you know, they, they run these two test flights, and neither of them had gone as planned to the point where here you are with your second Saturn V flight, and the flight director said that was a disaster. Despite, actually, because that capsule did land in the water, people kind of played it as, well, they had some issues, but they learned a lot, and it was successful because they got the capsule back. And uh, inside NASA, that was not the feeling. Mm-hmm. And and to be clear, this would have been a mission abort had it been crewed. I read very mixed things on this. I'm curious if the book you read covered this. I read some articles that indicated that this launch may not have been survivable by crew, that the launch was so rough. But then I read mm-hmm. other things that said that wasn't true. But either way, it it would have led, at the very least, to a mission to a lunar mission abort. So, yeah, there's no. There's no certainty about whether it would have killed the crew, the pogoing, uh, but certainly it would have been very stressful. They may have been injured yeah. at the very least. There were, you know, the G forces uh, in the in the pogo were pretty bad, but it seems like there's no definitive belief about whether they would have survived or not. And I can't decide whether that's because people are hyping up the uh, the scariness of it or whether people are downplaying the danger. No, no, no. I'm sure they would have been fine, and that's not actually realistic. Yeah. I'm not sure. NASA ended up kind of getting away with this one. Um, with it being like, well, they, they, it splashed down and there were some issues, but, you know, they, they, it, it, it's fine, even though Chris Craft considered it a disaster, in large part because the press was so distracted with other news in uh, the tumultuous year of 1968. Um just 10 hours after that command module splashed down, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, and the story changed and attention was not being focused on an Apollo test flight. Uh, that anniversary, the 15th anniversary, you know, is coming up and there's stuff all over town. And it's, uh, yeah, it's it's incredible. These two things happen the same day to me. It blows my yeah, mind. Yeah, we're, we're about a week away from that 50th anniversary of the assassination. So that'll be a big, that'll be a big uh, thing in Memphis, I would think. Mm, it is. Like you said, this caused issues inside NASA. You know, after Apollo 1, a lot of those changes were focused on the capsule itself. You get the block two, you get, uh, you know, overhauled interior. The Saturn V, you know, its its roots in Apollo five and six did lead to changes. They did work harder to detune the rocket. Uh, they did work harder to make sure that those those panels that came off. It turns out that they had collected water inside the panels during uh, during liftoff and its trip through the atmosphere so they made those panels able to drain that fluid away so they, they made changes to the rocket after this but um it it needed to 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 reset a little bit and to uh to make sure that this vehicle was safe but in the end they did deem that it was okay to put crew on it and then we end up uh in october of 1968 with uh with apollo 7 the first uh, the first crew flight yeah, I think it's safe to say that this um, this is the moment and the gap between us talking about Apollo 6 and Apollo 7 when the original trajectory for the Apollo program completely changed. And some of it was informed by these two questionable uh, test flights and, and some of it was other circumstances that led to it. But what they were planning Apollo 7 and 8 to do at this point is not what 
Apollo 7 and 8 actually did. The playbook completely changed. It was a surprising, bold move to get people to the moon sooner. Mm -hmm. And spoiler alert, it worked. But more on that. <laughs> if you were unaware. <laughs> yeah. And and Apollo seven didn't use the Saturn V. It used the one B because it was it was just an orbital flight. So Yeah, it, they took a timeout from the Saturn V for a little bit there. Um but they were able to do it. The Saturn V, you know, had a, a successful um successful mission life after this. But uh, you know, I think I think, you know, five and six sort of get lost in the shuffle because they're just test flights. But um you know, if something had more seriously had happened, it, it, I think it'd be much more uh, a much stickier point in Apollo's history. But thankfully, they were able to to move forward without you know loss of a vehicle. Yeah. Uh, well, cool. I think that does it for this week. I think so. We'll be back in. Uh, well, we will be back in a fortnight, of course, a fortnight from now. But we will be picking up Apollo in October because again, we're moving real time here. So the fiftieth anniversary of Apollo 7 in October and we will have our special we'll we'll start our special crude Apollo episodes then but uh, we'll be back in 2 weeks with all sorts of other talk because as Stephen and I have learned uh, there's a lot going on in space space is very big and it's very busy and there's plenty to talk about every 2 weeks there is if you uh, if you want to find show notes for this week's episode you can do so uh, over on our website relay.fm slash liftoff slash 69 uh, links to all the stuff we talked about the budget and curiosity and then a bunch of stuff about apollo 6 you can go read more definitely go check out that footage we'll have a link to that on youtube it's um it's real breathtaking stuff to, to see it 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 was very it made me think very much about the spaceman uh in the tesla because the same type of deal right it's not crude you see space hardware and the earth going kind of behind the scenes it's really nice right. stuff uh so that's on the website uh, you can get in touch with us there. There's an email link. Uh, there's also a link to our Tumblr, which uh, Jason will hopefully say the, the URL of in, in a grand voice right about now. Liftoffpodcast.space. You, sir, did not let me down with that. You said grand. <laughs> I went for grand. It's really good. Uh, we uh, we put stuff on the Tumblr kind of in between episodes. And you can find us on Twitter. The show is at liftoffpodcast. Jason is at J Snell, Snell with two L's, and you can find me there as ISMH. And until our next Fortnite, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye! <laughs> Adios! <laughs>